0: Learn more at marines.com. Hey
1: everyone, John Worth, I'm here. It is this week's Sports Illustrated slash Tennis Channel Tennis Podcast. Our guest this week, The Great Matz Vlander, seven-time Grand Slam champion, current Eurosport commentator, the eponym of Vlander on wheels that we'll talk about a road show that he's been doing for uh, for a number of years and overall just one of the great overarching presence in this sport. This is a fun conversation. I think you'll see why Matz is so uh so popular, why he's such an important member of the tennis community. Always a good conversationalist and this time was no exception. He's not in his home of Idaho, but he's on the other side of the ocean. But we'll talk to him now. Here's Mats Villander. Always a pleasure. Always a pleasure speaking. Um, yeah, likewise. Thank you. Where Where are you? Where are we getting you?
0: I am in Palma de Mallorca. Really? Spain. Yes.
1: It's uh. It ain't Idaho. What What brings you there?
0: No, it's. Uh, there was an ATP Champions Tournament last weekend uh, where I played a couple of doubles. I did not play singles, but I played a few doubles with uh, Mansur Barami and Michael Pernforce. And Tim Henman jumped in, and um, so it was uh, very nice. And I'm here for another three days doing uh, tennis clinics, so tennis camps, with Michael Pernforce and, and 12 Scandinavians.
1: Twelve Scandinavians in Mallorca sounds like the setup to a joke. Um,
0: uh, yeah, y- no, y- uh, it's very Swedish actually. Palma, Mallorca, is quite Swedish. A lot of Swedes here, and a the Swedish hotel and Swedish-owned uh, tennis club where they play the tournament. And uh, so, yeah, really, really good spot.
1: Did you have anything to do with the Nadal Academy, or is this totally separate?
0: No, totally separate. Yeah, he's in uh, over in Manacor, which is sure. about forty-five minute drive from Palma. But so it's totally separate. Um, yeah, we're just here for. Uh, Moya, Tommy Haas, uh, Ferrero, Henman, Melis uh, and Kurecha played the singles and then uh, they put a few doubles in between so
1: Let's talk tennis. What uh it's mid-October when you look out at the sport right now at this period of time. What what, what are you seeing? Sort of big big picture uh where is professional tennis right now?
0: Um, Wide I open think that, um, both, uh, men's and on the women's side, um, there is a little bit of a change going on at top. Obviously, um, obviously Novak Djokovic has, uh, stopped that debate, I suppose, winning the last two. but I still feel like there's, I mean, it's obvious that, uh, the Rafa is getting older, um, for obvious reasons, but you could just tell that he's, not necessarily slowing down, but we might not see him at his best all the time um, for physical reasons, and I think that opens up um, a little bit of a void and the chance for the younger guys to come in. Uh, obviously Federer, we, uh, the U.S. Open, I, I will discount that, but in um, the last three or four months he's lost close matches. So, yeah, he's not, they're not on their way out, but I think that there's a professional tennis right now, there's a good chance for young guys to come through. Unfortunately, we haven't seen it in the last 10, 15 years, but uh, I think that it's inevitable that they're coming, and I think that the younger generation is coming. Obviously, on the women's side, it's already happened, Um, and on the women's side, I'm not sure which of the older players are going to stop the young invasion. Uh, Serena is maybe able to, but so I think that's what I see, and obviously, when that happens, you start thinking about what's going to happen the day that Federer and Nadal and possibly Djokovic are not in the game anymore or Serena or Maria Sharpova but um, I think that it's you know it's a good thing it's going to happen and we have um, I guess you could say survived changes like that before with Bjornborg quitting and Mackinac not winning much after that um, so I'm not worried I'm excited and um, looking for new
1: rivalries really if you're, uh, if you're going to back one or two horses on the men's side, we we've been, I mean, you said it, and it's we we say it, and we don't even think about it when we it. It's been ten or fifteen years since, uh, we, we've had a breakthrough, which is just remarkable. But if you if you were going to pick uh, one or two horses to be the next player to win a major, not named Federer, Nadal, Djokovic, Murray, Vavrinka, who, uh, who do you like?
0: Um, you know. It's so hard to know what's going to happen to the likes of Kei Nishikori and Milos Raonic, and um, I mean, you're going to have to throw Grigor Dimitrov in there. When these guys, uh, uh, you know, the, the great four, big four, are done, are they going to be able to step up and and suddenly gain that confidence to win majors, or are the young guys going to push them out of the way? There's a lot of young guys. So for me, I think that the, maybe at the moment, I think I'm looking at Stefanos Tsitsipas. I don't know if he's going to win a major in the next three, four years, but I think he's a pretty safe bet on on heading to the top of the game. I think he's got a pretty big game. He's got a good head on his shoulders. He, he moves well for a big guy. Great attitude. Seems to enjoy the fight. Enjoys uh, a bit of variation in his game. Um, obviously, Denis Shapovalov, but I think Tsitsipas, for me, is is a safer bet than than most others, apart from maybe Karen Khachanov. I think he's a full-on workhorse huge game great attitude moves unbelievably well and and he's got good technique in most shots and i think he's learned to learn to uh, manage the forehand side so i think that's where um, i'm looking um i think what we found out and again we find out all the time that if you have a couple of great players winning a lot of majors uh in one generation the generation that comes behind usually suffers when sampras agassi wins most of it um Borg, wins wins, mo- and then and now. So I mean, it's good to have stars in the game, but they do sort of delete a lot of potential uh, Grand Slam winners by being just a little bit better and breaking their confidence down to basically nothing against them.
1: <laughs> but when you when you say, I mean, people have always said the same thing: boy, tennis is really going to be in trouble when when Federer, Nadal, Djokovic, Serena are gone. But w- wouldn't you take that bet? I mean, is, isn't that preferable to have these four reliable? unbelievable generational champions. Isn't that preferable um, to the alternative of, of every tournament's up for grabs and we don't have these, these solid stars?
0: I mean, I guess it is in a way, yes, because it brings tennis to the masses. And I think people tune in to Roger Federer. And uh, obviously by now everyone knows who plays tennis. But I think people tune in that are not necessarily tennis fans because uh, he's obviously transcended the sport. But I I, I don't know. I, I look at this next the next generation, as I do, the generation that came after Sampras, and and then, of course, Agassi hung in there a little bit longer than we thought. But, you know, that was Elayton Hewitt, Andy Roddick, uh, Juan Carlos Ferrero, Marat Safin. And, uh, I mean, they all won, won slams before Roger Federer uh, won slams. And, and it seemed to me that maybe Sampras and Agassi kind of had to be out of there before Federer gained the confidence to, to believe he can win slams. I know he beat Pete Sampras in Wimbledon early on in his career, but... Uh, he really didn't win as early as uh, a lot of great champions did. But so I think that's what we're going to see. And I think a, a great star will um, will come through. And a guy that is refuses to lose of those uh, younger guys, I think. And like on the women's side, I think they, they will come through. So, yeah, there might be a year or two or three when we're sort of uh, who's going to be the rival? Who's going to be the next guy? And we don't know. And then suddenly somebody comes through and. Do you have to win 15 majors uh, in our sport these days to be called a, gr- a great champion? I don't think so. Right. I think 60 plus comes through and wins four or five or Shapovalov. I think that, you know, the era we've had now is so, um, <laughs> it's so. <laughs> it's distorting, isn't it? I don't know. It's unbelievable. But I mean, you have to also look at what's happened, I believe, with with slower courts, slower balls. The guys can play the same game on all the different surfaces and just look at Novak because that's basically what he does, and he's unbelievable at it. Um, I think we're seeing tournaments change a little bit. Australian Open is much faster. Uh, we have more one-handed backhands uh, coming up. We thought that was over. That's not over. Uh, they are not. They don't have to come from um, the bigger countries. I mean, suddenly we have a Greek player. We have somebody from Canada. I mean, it's... Um, So I don't think so. I think that uh, tennis is in a a very healthy place because of what Federer, Nadal, and Djokovic are doing and have done. And I think they've just raised the bar. I look at it as Tiger Woods in golf where, uh, okay, we need that star. But the game is so good uh, in golf right now. And I think that tennis will be – I mean, when when you're crawling around the floor at home and you start hitting balls against the wall and you're looking at Roger Federer's one-handed backhand, you're going to go, well, hold on a second. Uh, I'm going to do that, but better. Right. And they're going to get better and stronger. And mentally, are they ever going to be at the same level as those three? I'm not 100 percent sure, but certainly physically, they're going to exceed uh, those guys somehow.
1: Evolution's a beautiful thing. Um, I yes, one, one of the uh, I was just telling uh, I was just telling a friend this. One of the great treats of covering the sport is uh, when we travel, we get we get to hear you, and we get to hear Barbara Shed and we get to hear Eurosport, which is a completely different experience from uh, from American coverage and American TV, I'm wondering how you guys have covered Djokovic, which I think is sort of one of the great secrets in, in plain sight. It's sort of this, this great story that's hidden in front of us. Um, what happened to the guy and then this remarkable comeback? And I think sometimes conflicts of interest get in the way. Sometimes relationships get in the way. I feel like this is a story that hasn't been properly told. And I'm curious... Given the freedom you guys have on your broadcast, uh, how you're handling the, the return of Novak Djokovic and the mysterious uh, sabbatical he went on.
0: I think it's more mysterious that we're not talking about Roger Federer having a dry spell, not winning for five years. Um, Nadal had a mysterious time in his career for a couple of years where he where. Uh, he Yes, he got injured. Or did he? Or did he not? Or was he just not playing well? Or was he not able to practice? So I think Novak's uh, road is more normal and natural than uh, than we have um, allowed ourselves to think that Federer and Nadal have been this superhuman. But but I, I think in, in the end, you got to look at wins. Roger Federer covers it up in a completely different way. When he's not winning, he's still graceful. Uh, Rafael Nadal covers it up by by not showing any negative emotion, but just going full on, and it doesn't matter how good he's playing. he's just It's just me and him, or you and him, and, and he doesn't want to lose to you. With Novak, he's a little more, um, I think, more human in the way that he shows uh, disappointment and uh, satisfaction on a tennis court, uh, and that's way more if you look back at what great champions have been like in the past, with maybe the exception of Jimmy Connors, but... There've been ups and downs, and I think Fedor Nadal is—it's just the way they have handled themselves through tough times. We don't really talk about them having a being in a slump. So Djokovic's slump was very short. Obviously, the elbow surgery um, had a big—it uh, was a big reason for it. I think conflict of interest off the court when you have two kids and a and a wife, you got to have new values, and um, and I think that you know he's—I think the way we've covered him is he's come so far. Uh, to us uh, in Europe, where he came out and obviously won the Australian Open she's 10 years ago, I guess it is. Um, right. And he was fragile. Emotionally, he was very fragile. And we co- I covered that, and I was not um, impressed with the way he behaved on the court. But the way he has changed that and become a complete warrior, I think that, to me, is a bigger change than Roger Federer's backhand. I really do. I think Novak's mentality has just gone from not being very good to being unbelievably good, especially in big
1: matches, it's really interesting. I mean, the knock on Djokovic used to be just push him around a little, get get him into the to the latter rounds it's like a boxer. Just just hang in there uh for seven or eight rounds, and eventually he's going to tap out. And it's been a total transformation, hasn't it?
0: It has been a total transformation. I really think, though, uh, also that that famous match at the. The semis of the U.S. Open, or a couple of semis in a row, actually, against Roger Federer, obviously the one where he sort of went, okay, you know what? You served my forehand. I'm not, I'm not letting you hit another winner. <laughs> right. I'm going for it. I'm right. taking my chance. And, and he was completely committed to that shot. And he's won so many matches by committing to just saying, okay, you know what? I'm going to be full-on aggressive, and I'm going to beat myself. If I lose, if I'm, I'm going to beat myself, which hasn't happened very often. But then he's also showed the other side where, you know, he's fighting through A little bit of Wimbledon against Nadal. I would think the crowd was slightly on Nadal's side. Um, Every time he's played Federer, the crowd is on Federer's side. That happens all the time, of course. And then uh, U.S. Open, we're so dying to have Del Potro come back and win. And and he's just figured out that, well, in this match against Del Potro, I am not going to try and out-hit the guy. I'm just going to be a human wall and not miss. So I think he's figured out so many different ways to win matches these days that in a big match... Um, I say that there's a play, players that have played big matches and there's big match players. And I would have to say that Novak Djokovic is as big a match player as anyone has ever seen.
1: You know what? One of the uh, the great pities of the U.S. Open for me was I, I heard the news that the Volander on Wheels van is in the shop. What's, what's the status uh, of at uh, the what's, what's the status of the van?
0: No, so what's happened this year is that I have, um, i am involved in starting to run a tennis club in Haley, Idaho. Uh, and it's taken a lot of my time to figure out how I'm going to be able to handle three indoor tennis courts uh, and, uh, and a big gym attached to it. So that has taken up a lot of time, enough time where we haven't gotten on the road. We're going on the road here in November, going down to New Orleans. Oh, um, we've done it for nine years, three months a year. Um, that's more than the seven year itch if you know what I mean so I don't exactly know where we are I can't imagine that we're not going to keep going because it's been one of the most fun things I've ever done in my life um, are we going to keep going three months a year in a motorhome or alter it a little bit I mean I started slicing backhands after a while uh, instead of hitting topspin so I think you evolved you know this <laughs> has evolved we, I evolved Cameron Lickle has evolved and and uh, we're getting older, and uh, we'll figure out a way to keep v on wheels going the way we think it should be going. So um, the future, I think, is that we both love to teach tennis, and uh, we'll get out there. We'll get out there for sure. It's just a matter of how we do it. Is it on wheels or v on water or... <laughs> We're not really sure, but uh, my time has been taken up by, by starting uh, to run this uh, gravity fitness and tennis in Haley Idaho. You should come out and check it out it's, in Haley uh, Idaho high altitude training camp. You oh, that's it, excellent. <laughs>
1: my uh, my producer Jamie's offered to be your designated driver for Volander on Wheels when you go to New Orleans. Um,
0: um you know that's a hard state, that's a hard spot. I mean, I'd rather give up my teaching my teaching role in Vlander on Wheels, but the driver part. That's me. That's me cuz the driver picks the music and uh-huh. I'm hanging out with uh, Cameron Lickle who is in his 30s and we don't have the same music style. So, uh the driver picks the music, so we don't need a driver, but uh, we might need a trainer at some point.
1: She could do that too. What's um the the club yeah. the, how, how close are you to the club in Idaho? I you, you don't live I'm in about Haley. You, yeah, you don't live in Haley, right?
0: Yeah, I do live in it. Yeah, I live in, no, Sun Valley is just sort of the stage name. I live in Haley. Okay. Um, and uh, we're about 20, 25 minutes from, from civilization in general, and uh, the tennis club is obviously in civilization. So it's close enough. I've never been involved in a tennis club. I'm um, still going to travel sort of four, five, six months a year, depending on the year. But I, I now feel I would love to have, and I now do have a place um, to go when I get home, um, play tennis, teach tennis. Uh, spend three, four hours on a court. I love hitting balls. I love teaching tennis with um, uh, anyone. So this is a news chapter in my life, and um, hopefully we can get some of our sort of deadhead fans that we've uh, gathered for the last nine years to come to Idaho and, and ski in the winter, play tennis um, in, in the afternoon, or come and fly fish. We call it the Augusta of fly fishing. That's where, where we are in Blaine County, and, and then play some tennis as well. So we're not really sure where we're going with it, but um, I'm really excited. But we do have some um, very interesting projects still for Vlander on
1: Wheels. That's uh, that's good living. I th- I would thought v- Vlander yeah, on yeah, Wheels. Yeah, good, good It, it was. Um, I you know I used to see the van even at the U.S. Open when they would uh, they would park it. On the other side of the bridge, there by the Unisfin, I, I always thought, what a great message that sent—that uh, that spoke as well as anything to the universal appeal of tennis. You could uh, uh, you, you yeah, could take absolutely. that anywhere.
0: Yeah, um, absolutely. I, I, please, please don't tell anyone that we also spend nights in it and slept in it because uh, uh, some nights we finish late at the U.S. Open. I gotta get up, get up early and do and do wheelchair uh, and wheels clinics over at Forest Hills. So. Where do we sleep? We sleep in the van in the uh, parking lot H, but don't tell the US Open because I don't think they allow us anymore. But you we get w- woken up by people hitting, kicking soccer balls into the wall, uh, into the side of yeah, the bus. Yeah, exactly. So, yeah, right, right, um, right. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, I posted I a photo
1: that. once in the parking lot. Your van was actually one of the goals for uh, – it, it looked like it, everyone was wearing <laughs> – I think it was El Salvadorian uh, t- Soccer League, and your, your van was one of the goals. Um I love that. So you know that, that reminds me of one of my one of my favorite stories about you. That a, f- a friend saw you in M- Melbourne Airport, and every, everyone is flying home from the Australian Open, and you're you're sitting there on a chair, and he goes up to you and he says, "How come you how come you're not down in the lounge? How come you're not in the Qantas Lounge with the rest of the beautiful people?" And and you say, <laughs> "I don't want to be with the beautiful people." Uh, that story always stuck with me, and. I'm curious, as I think about that, and as you tell me about sleeping uh, in a motor home during the u s open where where do you think you got that sensibility? I mean, where where'd you where uh, where your values come from?
0: I think the values come from um obviously how you're raised with your parents and having two older brothers, and I grew up in a tiny, tiny town in Sweden with not much to do except sports. Um, I grew up playing tennis with a lot with mostly people that were older than me, so um they, you always got sort of uh, coached or um talked to by them and how to behave and and uh still didn't want to lose to them but so I think that I was uh I don't know I'm lucky in that way but it's also you know um I guess when you've been traveling as much as we all have I think that there's a little bit of a wild person in there and and i'm looking for adventure at all times obviously being on tennis court in the semi-finals of grand slams that's a great adventure but that ended and um, so yeah i'm tennis is it's uh, you know it's my passion it doesn't turn me into a beautiful person at all i love uh, i love the sport and i'm always trying to give back to it as much as i possibly can uh, i think there has never ever been a tennis player that's even close to uh, uh, being as important as the game itself. Um, I'm hoping Roger Federer comes along and plays the French Open next year because I think it's a shame that that uh, he doesn't play there. I understand the reasons for it. But, again, no one's bigger than the game, and uh, we all owe the game for the rest of our lives. So that's what I'm interested in. And, uh, hey, the lounges, I'm not sure. They're crowded, too. So <laughs> <laughs> um, It's only yeah, an hey, extra squirt of fine. Pepsi. <laughs> yeah.
2: But, what, what yeah, team? so
0: I don't know. I'm not sure, John. I think you find that with a lot of with a lot of tennis players. I think you see you see us in the in the middle of the heat of the battle, and uh, you know you hang around, and it's oh, it's just, you know it's, a, it's just sort of an upper class sport, or it's expensive, or whatever it is. We make a lot of money, and we travel, and it's glamorous, or whatever. But that's not what, what what's interesting to me. Interesting is to try and come down and be as normal as I was before I turned pro, and and uh, and that's me. So, and I think a lot of pros are and not comfortable necessarily with the, what you call the beautiful people.
1: You mentioned Federer, and we were talking about this uh, a few weeks ago. I don't, I don't know if you we, – were you at Laver Cup? Did you make it there at all?
0: I didn't did, make it there, no. I watched it religiously on TV. I did last year as well, so um, I did not see it live.
1: It, so, I mean, it was remarkable on, on a number of levels. One of them was, I think, first and foremost, just the, the level of emotional buy-in from the players – you kept hearing this isn't an exhibition. Don't call it an exhibition, but it really didn't feel like one. But I, one thing that really struck me was it got me thinking where Roger Federer fits into tennis post-career. And in a lot of ways, it's in keeping what you're saying of the, the sport trumps everything. But here's someone who brings capital. He brings sponsors. He has a terrific gift for, for working a room, for for dealing with people. There's authenticity. Where do you see – you have any sense of where Roger fits into this whole – matrix when he's done playing
0: i think he fits in together with uh um, well let's just call it roger federer and we great humans of uh of our time and great humans that will go down in history as uh, somebody who's done a lot of things that have changed uh, people's inspiration and changed the world um and um and i think that he's so and what's so cool is that he is just that normal guy and and then he steps on the court and he's this genius but uh when he's in a room or, or, um, he's just a normal person, the way he was when he grew up and you see his parents in the bar bo- player box and they're applauding for both players and they're showing nerves. And, and, uh, Robert is obviously nervous, but, and you can see it, but I mean, at some point you think he would stop being nervous because Roger has won so much, but now not at all. Cause he's, and I think that's, it's just, um, and and the most important part about Roger Federer and Rafa Nadal and, you know, and and a lot of others being that normal is that that's why they're the best players of all time to me, because they have that respect as they have when they walk into room for every person there, that respect that goes on to the court and they respect the guy across the net so much that they lose sight of everything else, except the guy across the net. And because of that respect and, and humility, they are able to pretty much never, ever lose to a guy they shouldn't lose to. And that, it starts with a, a yes, I don't want to lose, that's for sure. But it also starts with, with checking out your opponent, checking out his strengths, checking out his weaknesses, being prepared, knowing what he does good, what he's not good at, when he chokes, what, what he, you know, when he wins, blah, blah, blah. That's why they're the best players in the world. You cannot just overlook your opponent and think you'll have consistent success. And I think the young players today need to really, really look at that because they show up every single day and they uh, and they – don't play their best, but you could never ever tell that they don't. And they figure out weaknesses of their opponent, and they try to make his their opponent worse. Rather than relying on their own strength, they rather exploit their other guy's weaknesses. That's respect to me.
1: That's really interesting, and I also I, I wonder too. As as I hear you say that, what is the impact on the other side of the net when you're the <laughs> opponent and, and Federer and Nadal are project this this humility and they're not unapproachable and you see them in the locker room and they acknowledge you. I wonder what impact that has on the opponent. How, how do you really psych yourself up to beat Roger Federer when he's such a normal guy who is acknowledging you as you as you walk out there onto the court?
0: I think a lot of players are not able to do that. They're not able to see. Um, I mean, obviously, we look at Jimmy Connors as, maybe the greatest competitor and fighter of all time in many ways, together with Rafael Nadal. Um, and Jimmy had some tricks, you know, up his sleeve. And, and uh, you could sometimes find a little nerve in yourself that says, listen, I don't like what he's doing right now. I don't, is that aimed at me or is it not? Or So, you know what, I don't like that. And I don't want to lose to uh, a guy who does that. So you could find another reason to not want to lose. Whereas with Federer Nadal, I am, I'm with you. I don't know how, guys get up for it. Um I think I think a lot of guys don't and I think a lot of guys dread playing them. I think they have a good time playing them, but they're not necessarily really upset if they don't if they don't win. And um I think yes, they get a lot of matches for free that are won in the locker room and I think most probably more so for Nadal and Federer. But um yeah, I think that's a problem, but that's a brilliant move by them, you know. That's that's uh, <laughs> With John McEnroe, yeah, sometimes you're like, I don't want to lose to this, what is he doing, blah, blah, blah. That doesn't happen with and Nadal. So I take my hat off to guys like Novak Djokovic who can actually look past that and just take them for tennis players, and I'm not losing to a guy who hits one-handed backhands, basically.
1: That's, uh, I've always remind what Charles Barkley you say about Michael Jordan, which is, uh, you know, you, you want to be his friend while he kills you. Um you're 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 uh you're in the wearables game, I hear. Yes. T- tell me uh tell yes, me what neuro are. tell me what I was, I was looking. I was funny. I was actually looking up uh something about your career, and I came across neuro tennis, a wearable that provides the wrist with uh, instantaneous auditory feedback. What does that mean? Uh,
0: that means that it's a wearable that you wear on the impact hand, so a right hander wears on his right on his right wrist, and uh, it's a wearable that um. Uh, detects the impact of the ball on your racket and really when you play tennis there are two triggers there's only two triggers and it's when I hit and it's when my opponent hits and certain things need to happen before I hit after I hit during the hit you do your best to get the ball somewhere close uh, to the lines. but before you hit you got to prepare after you hit you got to recover before your opponent hits, you got to prepare and after he hits you got to recover or prepare uh, and uh, we've come up with this because we have uh, with Cameron Lickle, uh, VLAN v- on wheels, we're out playing with um, two brothers from uh, Washington, D.C., who are uh, geniuses in our world and they're software engineers. And one of them said one time I was playing with him and he said, I need VLAND ear. And I said, What on earth is VLAND ear? Is a bad pronunciation of my name? <laughs> I said, no, no, no. I need you in my head. I need you in my ear. Like, I need yeah. you to tell me because I keep telling him, Split step, go to the middle, keep moving. They say, I need you all the time. And they came up with, um, with this wearable, and it tells you what you need to be doing, how you need to set yourself up to, to have the possible best result. I think if you go and listen to a good coach teaching tennis, they're not, they're not telling you necessarily what you did wrong it's more positive to try and tell them what they need to do right, and try your best to do that. And then the result of your shot is really the feedback. But we forget. I put it on, and I'm like, oh my god, it's telling me to move my feet. It's telling me to turn my shoulder. It's telling me to watch the ball. And I realize I'm actually not watching the ball. And if I forget, then the amateurs are going to they're going to be helped so much by this these commands that repeat and. And the beauty of the product is if you're working on your forehand, it has five, six, seven commands that come on every time you hit or your opponent's hit, or you can change it and have every third time you hit, uh, you don't have it on when your opponent. But you can also program your own command. So for you, John, it might be, hey, John, move your feet after you hit the ball, or, John, get back to the middle, (laughs) or watch the ball. You know me well. It's not like you – yes, I guess, but you don't – You don't necessarily, and you want to try and think of five or six things at the same time without thinking about them. We have it who started playing tennis at four or five years old, but somebody who's an amateur and has started late in life, moving your feet when the other guy is hitting, making a split step when the other person is hitting, watching the ball until it hits your strings like Roger Federer does. That's it's not that easy to remember. So you have this command uh, and this little speaker on your on your wrist uh, where you hear it. No one else hears it. Uh, but you, um, it's an unbelievable workout because when it tells you to move your feet, you're thinking, does it? No, I'm not moving my feet properly. So we have these uh, other apparatus where you can measure the spin of your ball. And I don't know, do I need to know if I hit it at a thousand RPMs or two or three or 4,000? Or how do I do that? I rather have a positive command of what I should try and do. And hopefully I do it, and then the result is that the ball goes in. So neuro-tennis, I think, um, yes, I love the idea, and I love the fact that a coach can go in and, and, and tell somebody who owns a neuro-tennis wearable that, listen, I'm going to put in a few commands for you because you're not moving your feet or you're not turning your shoulders, or, and you need to do that more than other people. So my voice will be on there uh, with that command, and that's what neuro-tennis is uh, go on the website, please, neurotennis.com, uh, neurotennis.com forward slash shop, and you can sign up and be one of the first to have an ability or a chance to buy them when they start coming out here in a couple of months.
1: That's very cool. That that makes 10,000 steps seem very obsolete, I have to tell you. Uh, that This uh, seems next well, level. Well,
0: there you go. I mean, exactly.
1: Um, all right. This was great. Well, uh Maybe we'll do this again in Australia if that's cool. But uh this is terrific. Anytime, John. It's always Anytime. Always a pleasure. It's uh it's, it's 6 it's 6 p.m. in Mallorca. So go uh, go eat lunch and uh this was great. Let's <laughs> uh no it's a, always a pleasure, seriously. And uh we, we will link uh that's that's actually really we're we're going to link to the product, but uh always a pleasure. We want to see Velador on wheels back on the road.
0: Alright, thank you very much, John. Have a have a great day back in the States, and uh, yes, I'll go and have lunch here in Spain.
1: <laughs> you as well. Always a pleasure. Thanks, Mats. Alright, thanks to Mats for joining us. Thanks as always to Jamie Lasanti. Jamie Lasanti, as I bring you in, I will just say, that is my kind of guy. Uh, love that guy. And uh, I think you, you got a sense of, uh, this is a seven-time Grand Slam champion, this is a Hall of Famer, this is a truly elite tennis player, you would never know it uh, talking to him. There is there's a real modesty, but there's also a real sense of engagement. Uh, I, enjoy, I enjoyed that, and uh, I don't know if you. What struck you? I don't know if you've ever uh, met Mats or spoken to him, but uh, again, you you will not find a more modest and humble figure in the tennis community. This is a guy who he comes in and he's he's wearing a backpack, and we were talking about the lounge, but there is there is no special access for him, and he does not care. Um, he cares about the sport, though. So, uh, no, I enjoyed that conversation. I don't know if anything struck you, but uh, jump in. How'd you like that?
2: It's it's great. He's he's really interesting, and I, I appreciate his uh, opinions, especially on Djokovic. I think he makes a good point there about how, you know, everyone was talking about Djokovic and his downfall and how he was going through this time and will he ever be back? And now, of course, he has proven us all wrong, but he made the point that Federer and Nadal and others have also gone through periods of of this in their careers, and people made too much of a deal of it, or, you know, kind of everyone goes through that. Was that. An, so,
1: that is not what I expected him to uh, say. I, I think we could push back a little and say, yes, Federer had a, a five-year drought when he wasn't winning majors, but he was still getting to finals. Um, the, the Djokovic swoon for a guy who reliably was getting to Grand Slam semis. I mean, it was something like 23 out of 25 Grand Slam semis, and then suddenly for about 18 months was struggling to get to uh, – the second week of majors, I I could push back a little there. But uh, no, I thought that was really an interesting... Uh, I thought that was an interesting point. And again, uh, Mott's is a, a straight shooter. And he he's also... I mean, we don't watch Eurosport in the United States, but he's also really a, a prominent A-list tennis commentator and uh, an analyst. He's on the road. Uh, he does a, a Game Set Mott's uh, segment on, on Eurosport. He's at all the majors. So he's on the road uh, a fair amount, too. But um, I, I also thought it was interesting what he said about how the, the humility of Federer-Nadal actually has a competitive advantage. And sometimes with with stars, and this is hardly uh, just an issue to tennis. I mean, it's hardly unique to tennis, but sometimes stars get to a certain level and people say, who was that guy? I was just heard, heard a great story about how Michael Jordan uh, was behaving the, the summer when he was drafted in the summer of 1984. And that person is unrecognizable from the, the Michael Jordan who became the great NBA player but I think it's interesting that he saw it as a competitive advantage that it actually uh, is conducive to their winning that that Federer Nadal have kept this level of uh, humility you're kind of shaking your head yeah You're a little I mean, skeptical
2: a little bit yeah I get it um but I think any player that's at the professional level would kind of laugh at that and be like yeah, at the surface, you know, maybe I maybe I think about that when I wake up in the morning, but by the time I brush my teeth, it's pretty much like, uh, this is what I do for a living. I'm a competitor, you know, I'm gonna play my hardest against this person. I think um I think us mortals probably have a uh have that in the back of our minds when we think, What would I do if I stood across the net and, you know, veterans right. standing there? But when you're you know, we've seen them fall yeah, many but times I, I think in it's early rounds like to people need- who
1: yeah, no, you're right. And I think, you know, look at John Millman just got done beating Roger Federer, so it's, it's not— as, but I think his, his point is, well, taken that an individual sport, it helps to have extra motivation or some sort of personal animus to help you beat the other guy. And I, I, remember, I remember early in Federer's career when you just sensed that the opponent was almost satisfied losing to Federer. I mean, it, it almost didn't have suspense in the outcome because the opponent was resigned— to losing to this nice guy who played beautiful tennis who I can't really get mad at because he's such a cool guy.
2: I think after the fact, though, that's when that comes into play. I don't think you, like I said, wake up in the morning, go out there, and that's what you're thinking. Like, uh, you know, if that's I fair, lose, fair I fair think point. after the fact, when you look at the scoreboard and you take a deep breath, you're not going to go and, you know, be a sore loser. You're going to sort of calm down and, and go ahead and shake his hand and, and kind of say, all right, well, I lost to Roger Fetter, You know, tomorrow's another day, you know, and you kind of move on. But I don't think it's not a mentality thing throughout the entire match. At least I hope not.
1: Uh, I think one thing that's interesting about V. Launder especially, he won one fewer major than Andre Agassi. He won the, the same number as McEnroe, one fewer than Jimmy Connors, only four fewer than Bjorn Borg. I'm not sure that people see him necessarily as one of the great titans of tennis, which he is. I mean, he had one of the great all-time great seasons. Um, he probably cut his career uh, a bit short. Uh, he, he's, again, one of these 30 is a new 20. This is a guy who was, was by the time he hit 30 years old, he was done winning. But he's had a really, really, I mean, this is an absolute Hall of Fame, Mount Rushmore type of career. Seven majors on a variety of surfaces, um, you know, won, won all three majors, did not win Wimbledon, but otherwise won three of the four majors. This is a formidable tennis career. And for whatever reason, whether it's his own humility, whether it's the fact that he didn't draw attention to himself, he's you know he's probably my size. I mean, he's not a towering physical presence. Played at the same time as McEnroe, who took a lot of the oxygen out of the room. I'm not sure history has quite given him his due as, uh, as a player. If I told that's you fair. a year ago, John McEnroe and Matt Wielander, each won seven majors. Uh,
2: right. All right. I think that's fair. Do you think that that... Uh we talk about Federer, Nadal, Djokovic. Do you think—I I have one player in mind, but do you think there's a player that um, is suffering from the same sort of effect maybe as as he well, is? I'm
1: curious who—I mean, I I always had a theory that players marketed themselves in tennis after their retirement. So Ivan Lendl goes away for years and years. We later learn that that may have been tied to, uh, to a lawsuit. Uh, but, you know, P- Pete Sampras is not interested in coaching, being a commentator, being a, much of a presence, and I wonder if that doesn't— undercut his achievements. Conversely, John McEnroe is absolutely everywhere. Right. And maybe his... The same way to Charles Barkley in the NBA. I mean, I think Mm -hmm. players define their careers some ways after they retire. And John McEnroe's absolute ubiquitous presence probably... Gives him more stature than his yeah. There's a recency effect. Yeah, exactly. Um, yeah, Steffi Graf, same way.
2: Exactly. That's what I was going to say. Was that yours? No, uh, who was yours? I'm curious. No, no. That that's what I was going to say in in that example. But I'm thinking um, with with Mats, you mentioned Borg. Is there something that happens like down the road if Varinco wins more majors? And suddenly he's close to double digits. Does he have a similar. Oh, oh, oh the countryman. Okay. Yeah, something like yeah. that where he is disappears after he retires and doesn't, uh, maybe not, he's not as high profile as someone like Federer.
1: That's really interesting. I mean, it's, it's Borg and also I would add Edberg, mm-hmm. who played probably a more aesthetically pleasing game and mm-hmm. won at Wimbledon when Wimbledon was far and away. The most prestigious of the four majors, I I think that probably goes into it. That's an interesting point. Yeah, Stan Wawrinka, basically in some way obscured. Yeah, it's a. Is there
2: any players that will end up being obscured because of Federer, Nadal, Djokovic? Countrymen are not, but people who, you know, at the end of the day, at the end of their careers, you look back, as you said, at, at major totals and how many majors they've won across across all of them, and you say, wow, well. They've won the same, but they don't seem like the same caliber of player looking back. Is that, you know, are we going to get to that point? It's it's interesting.
1: Yeah, it's interesting. I think that happens a lot. I mean, I think uh, you just sort of look at the math going forward. And Matt's talked about this a little bit, that we're so spoiled, it's a joke. I mean, if a player today wins, you know, if you said to Zverev, you're going to win three, four majors for your career, it's sign me up. Mm -hmm. I mean, the notion we're going to have this double-digit major winners. Right now, we have uh, three of them and four if you count serena and venus has seven i mean it's it's just comedy because back it's in the true. old days you know se- seven majors was made you john McEnroe. now seven majors and you're it's
2: not necessarily you know, the standard exactly it's, it's...
1: uh it's gonna be an interesting uh, correction period for tennis but um uh, anyway um good conversation with matt's always uh always a favorite man uh-huh. of the people love that guy yeah. um all right we will have another podcast next week uh thanks to matt's thanks as always to jamie Pleasure. Thank you, John. Um, remind us, as you do each week, if people were so interested in uh, subscribing or leaving reviews, where might they go about doing that?
2: They go on Apple Podcasts, and they can click subscribe so that they get their podcast delivered to their phone so they can download and listen right away, and they should leave a review.
1: There you go. You heard it from Jamie. All right. Thanks, everyone. Thanks for listening. Keep the suggestions coming. We'll do it again in